indeed, O oh God, as your people greet a Savior, but not simply a Savior, a, a risen Savior indeed. One whose death means that there has been an agreement, an acceptance on the part of the Father to the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. He has looked on the death of his Son and is satisfied. And for us, the guilty, the sinner, we now have forgiveness available because of what Christ has accomplished not only in his life, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. He has lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and resurrected to a newness of life, which will one day be ours. Oh God, might that resonate within the hearts and souls of your people this day. A simple reminder that this life, whether it be long, whether it be short, is simply a dress rehearsal for eternity. A time and place where we will spend our whole selves, our all of our energy, in the worship of the God who made us, and then found a way to save sinners such as I. Oh God, get glory for yourself. Might there be a, a swelling of your hearts as our hearts swell in remembrance of what you have done for your people. Now take our gifts and use them for one reason, to exalt the risen Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the first epistle of Peter. Um, more difficult to find, find Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, I'm going to read you just three verses out of 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 3. You follow in your copies of God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. When you come to church on Easter Sunday morning, what do you expect to hear? <laughs> I, I bet you think this is going to be about resurrection, and you're right. What, um, what would you like me to tell you about the resurrection? Um, most of it. We already know, that is, many of us, many of you already know most of it. Although I did read in the commercial appeal this week that, that there's only a minority of us who are left that really believe it. Uh, but I could uh, uh, use this time to do my best Josh McDowell imitation, uh, or Lee Strobel, you know, uh, give you the four proofs of the resurrection. And that's fun and useful uh, to a point. 
Uh, we, we walk away from that intellectually stimulated and, and feeling perhaps a, a bit intellectually superior. Uh, until we go back to school on Monday morning and our biology professor tells us that uh, that's a bunch of bunk. And then he mentions the Da Vinci Code. By the way, uh, I, I am going to address the Da Vinci Code next Sunday. So if you're interested in stuff like that. Come back, and we'll um, we'll wrestle with that a bit. But you know, we could we could do those four proofs, and and we would feel a, a, a bit, perhaps intellectually smug, until we go back to work on Monday, and really the people in our office are not, you know, they're not really concerned about my four proofs. They're uh, they might be interested in ninety proof, but they're not interested in my four proofs. Um, or I could take you to First Corinthians fifteen. First uh, Corinthians 15 is a chapter that's wholly devoted to the uh, the subject of the resurrection, written, of course, by Paul. And and I can try to explain to you the the argument uh, of the Apostle Paul as he he tries to show the implications of not believing in the resurrection. And that certainly is a good thing and serves a useful purpose. If, if nothing else, we we find another portion of God's word that we understand better. And, and that's always a good thing. Or I, I could take you to one of the these glorious accounts of uh, the resurrection morning that is given to us by um, the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, that's always fun to do. It's always a thrill to look there again. And but I have to say, uh, you know, we've we've done that. Um, I, I think before. I think you've been in and around that before. And, and one of the things that I think that all three of those options have in common, that is the four proofs in 1 Corinthians 15 or one of the gospel records, one of the things that all three of those have in common is that they, they lean, they lean towards the cognitive. That is, they, they, they tend to stimulate the mental side of me, which I'm all for, folks. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. But but they they tend to stimulate the, that 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 brain side of me and and I have to tell you and I think I think I'm not alone in this that of, of all the times on the Christian calendar the one time when I I would like to feel rapture not the rapture but 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 the one time that I'd like to feel rapture is Easter Sunday morning. Because I'm really more than a human brain. I'm a, I'm a human being. And sometimes my heart gets left behind while my head is being stuffed. I long for wonder. Especially on Easter Sunday morning. I long to emote. I long to be stirred. I want to know, I want to know what Peter meant when he said, I have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because I, I, I never want to live life without hope. Oh, I've got other hopes. You know, I, I hope I get a date for prom and I hope I get a promotion and, 
But, but those things come and go. I want to know what this is all about. A living hope through the resurrection. What I want to know is not about the tense of the Greek verbs and, and uh, the etymology of the Greek word for tomb or uh, the derivation of the Roman style of, of executing criminals. That's all, those are all wonderful pieces of information, and, and I appreciate having them. But more and more, what I want to know is, what difference does it make? Okay, so what? This resurrection business. Okay, okay, okay. So what? How, how, does, how does believing in the resurrection, which I really, and I'm not speaking for all of you, but I'm speaking for most of you, I really already believed it before I ever came here this morning. I, I, you know, how does believing in the resurrection impact the way I live? A living hope through the resurrection. Jimmy, could you internalize that for me? Could you unpack that just a little bit? I'm going to try. Here goes. We're going to start with the living part. I'm, of course, alluding to something out of verse 3. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's start with that, that living part uh, of what Peter's up to. I have five grandchildren. I have four boys and one girl. That's kind of imbalanced, don't you think? But um, uh, the, the scales are about to be tipped back in the favor of balance pretty soon now because we have two granddaughters who are on the way. One of those will be born the old-fashioned way in a uh, labor and delivery room sometime in August, Lord willing. The, the other... The other is going to come to us in a way that is anything but ordinary. Anything but normal. This little girl, who will soon be our granddaughter, was born six years ago in Tajikistan. I'll let you go home this afternoon and find out where that is, but um, it's one of the most volatile Muslim nations on the face of the planet. She was born in Tajikistan, and she will become my granddaughter in a courtroom, not a labor room, in a courtroom in Moscow on the 26th of this month. And her name is Farida. The whole uh, process, this whole adoption process began about 18 months ago. I still remember it. Susie and I were out to supper on a Friday night um, uh, in November of 2004. Not, not 2005, but 2004. Susie and I were out to supper at the La Hacienda here in Cargerville, the big spender that I am. And um, had a coupon, too. Uh, <laughs> but um, there we were and uh, enjoying ourselves. And my cell phone rang, and it's my daughter, Megan, in Washington, D.C., and uh, she's all excited. Uh, by the way, my daughter just gave birth to a little girl about six months ago. And they have already adopted one Russian orphan, a little boy. 
And she was calling us that night in November of 2004 to tell us that the adoption agency had just called them to ask them if they would be interested in having another Russian orphan, this time a girl. And the reason that the adoption agency thought this might work was because this little girl looked somewhat like Kolya, their, their son. And so Megan was calling us uh, to tell us how excited she was and that indeed they were interested. And at that point, the odyssey began. You know, you have the forms to fill out and the applications and the, the home study. And then they even made a trip to uh, Moscow or to Russia. They, they flew to Moscow and then out and um, to, to meet the little girl to see if this is something they wanted to pursue. And, and it was. And so they came back um, all excited about having another little girl. Um, about a year later, last November of 2005, the process had not moved very far. In fact, it was going awfully slowly, and uh, there was all kinds of things that were happening, and I couldn't tell you all, we don't have time, but uh, it was just a slow, arduous process, and not much was taking place in terms of closing the deal. And so my son-in-law, Scott, who is an absolute treasure, my son-in-law decided that it was very important, he was, he was deeply convinced and convicted that it was very important that he take a trip to see this little girl, Farida, and, and tell her that they in, did indeed intend to adopt her and would adopt her as soon as the Russian government finally approved it. And so last November, my son-in-law Scott flies to Moscow. He takes an overnight train... Boy, if you've ever seen an overnight train in Russia, uh, he takes an overnight train over to the orphanage in Kaluga, Russia. And when he finally is able to see little Farida, they only let her let him see her two 15-minute segments, one on one day, one on the other. Two 15-minute slots is all they got, all he got. He went alone. When the little girl finally saw Scott. She said to him in her little Russian, she said, Papa, where have you been? I wait for you every day. Now, um, tell me something. Do you think that Scott's visit made a difference do you think it made a difference to that little six-year-old Tajikistani? Do you, do you think that visit helped? Okay, if it did, how did it help? Why does one spend that kind of money and go to that kind of trouble for two 15-minute visits? Well, Jimmy, I mean, you, you don't want the little girl to uh, lose hope. Oh. So, what happens when we lose hope? 
Oh, oh, well, I mean, you know, it's hard to predict uh, because different people react differently. You know, but, uh, you know, but, but generally speaking, Jimmy, hopeless people do hopeless things. Yeah, they do, don't they? Because without hope, life becomes brittle and, and joyless and pointless. But, but if, you, if you'll periodically remind me and give me some facts and some promises about why I should go on hoping, it'll make all the difference in the world. Give me a hope that's living. And I'll be able to bear up under the sadness while I wait. Wait for what? Hmm, I'm so glad you asked. Let's, let's advance this discussion just a bit. We're trying to unpack what Peter meant by a living hope through the resurrection. If I were to ask you, um, who was the greatest college basketball coach that ever lived, that ever coached in the game, I don't think there'd be much disagreement in this room. I think we pretty much would all agree on the same man. His name? John Wooden. Uh, Coach Wooden won 10 NCAA basketball championships at UCLA, and nobody has ever come within six of him. At one point, Wooden won 88 straight basketball games, and no one has ever gotten any closer than 42. (laughs) There, um, There has never been a coach like John Wooden. Loyal to one woman, one school, and, and, and one way. Uh, Coach Wooden would spend the first 30 minutes of the first day of practice teaching his players how to put on a sock. And these world-class athletes would look around at each other and, and snicker and roll their eyes. And, uh, and uh, sooner or later, they'd get it right. And then Coach Wooden would say, okay, now for the other foot. Um, of the 180 players that played for John Wooden, he uh, still knows the whereabouts of 172 of them. Which really isn't that big a deal because most of them call him on a regular basis just to check on him and say he's doing. John Wooden can tell you some stories. He tells the story about teaching Lewis the hook shot. That would be Lewis Alcindor. Some of you would know him by the name Kareem abdul Jabbar. He would say, discipline yourself and others won't need to. Never lie, never cheat, never steal. If you played for Wooden, you played by his rules. You never score without acknowledging a teammate. One word of profanity and you're done for the day. Treat your opponent with respect. He believed in hopelessly out-of-date stuff That never did anything but win championships. No showboating. No dribbling behind the back or through the legs. There's no need for it, he'd say. There was never a UCLA number ever retired under his watch. He would say, what about the people who occupied that, had that jersey before you? Didn't they contribute to our team? No long hair, no facial hair. 
Um, it takes too long to dry, and you might catch a cold on the way out of the gym. That was the rule that really drove his players crazy. One day, Bill, Wood, uh, Bill Walton, you remember that name? Uh, he was the All-American center. He's still is on television. Bill Walton showed up the first day of practice with a, with a full beard. And he went to the coach and he says, this is my right. And um, uh, Walton said to him, uh, that's good, Bill. Do you, do, you, do you feel strongly about this? He said, yes, sir, I feel real strongly about it. He said, well, I, I understand and I admire people who have strong beliefs and stick by them. I really do. And you know what? We're going to miss you. And Walton shaved that beard then and there, and he still calls Coach Wooden once a week to tell him that he loves him. Coach Wooden is 95 years old now and, and couldn't attend this year's Final Four because, um, because he was in the hospital. He wanted to see his beloved UCLA play, but couldn't leave the hospital. Here, here's another quote from Wooden. There is only one kind of life that truly wins. And that is the one that places faith in the hands of the Savior. Until that is done, we are on an aimless course that runs in circles and goes nowhere. Material possessions, winning scores, and great reputations are meaningless in the eyes of the Lord. Because He knows what we really are. And that's all that matters. You see, ladies and gentlemen, John Wooden was a Christian, or is a Christian. Here's a little tidbit that you might not know about John Wooden. Until his health made it impossible for him to do so, there was one thing that he would do on the 21st of every month. Every 21st of the month that rolled around, he would do one thing alike. What he would do is that he would sit down and he would pin a love letter to his favorite girl, and uh, he would tell her how much he missed her, tell her how much he loved her and couldn't wait to see her again. And then he would fold the note and he would stick it, slide it inside a little envelope. And then he would go into his bedroom. And there, sitting on her pillow, was a stack of letters tied in a red ribbon. He would untie the red ribbon. He would put this letter on the top of the stack and tie the red ribbon all over again. Because, you see, it was on the 21st day of the month that his beloved wife of 53 years, Nellie, died. And that stack has grown to at least 180 letters every 21st of the month for 15 years. John Wooden has written a letter to his wife who's preceded him. And Wooden said, I'm not afraid to die. Death is my only chance to be with her again. Now, why don't you go ask John Wooden if the resurrection makes any difference to him? Take away the resurrection from John Wooden and see how many letters he writes. Gang, when, when the scriptures talk about a living hope, the idea is that the hope is something that provides a certain tinsel strength to life. You take that away, and life becomes brittle. It becomes, 
becomes almost too heavy to bear. And the resurrection that's living that John Wooden has has something to do with the resurrection. So take one more step with me. I read a story some months ago about uh, a woman who taught a Bible study in a nursing home. We're going to call her Linda. But Linda taught a Bible study in a nursing home every week. Every Friday uh, morning, she would teach this Bible study. And, and um, one of the students or one of the people that came, one of the senior citizens that came to her Bible study every week was a, an Alzheimer's patient, Alzheimer's patient by the name of Betsy. Betsy was slender and um, snow-white hair and, and um, blue eyes and a, and a pleasant smile. And, and every week, Linda would introduce herself to Betsy, and every week, Betsy would respond as if she had never met her before. When other people in the, in the little Bible study would, would uh, react or tell a joke or laugh at something, uh, Betsy would simply sit there with this distant, disarming smile with a rather vacant look in her eyes, and, and she would... She would smile, but, but she didn't comprehend one thing of the conversation that was going on around her. A few weeks uh, into this Bible study, Linda learned that Betsy had retained her ability to read. Uh, and the way that she learned or found out that Betsy knew how to read is that Betsy, every week, would bring a postcard to the Bible study with her, a postcard that she had received from her daughter several months earlier. And she would bring that postcard to the Bible study, and she would pour over it line by line as if it had come in yesterday's mail. She had no comprehension of what she was reading and would repeat the same line over and over, like, like a stuck record, and over again until somebody said, you know, move on. And then she'd go to the next line. But on a good day, Betsy could read straight through that postcard and, and, um, and you could understand every word that she said. Well, um, one of the things that went on in this Bible study is... Um, Linda decided, having discovered that Betsy knew how to read, is that she was going to ask Betsy to read a hymn uh, each week. And being senior citizens, these folks uh, enjoyed the older hymns, the ones that they learned as children. And so one Friday, um, the, the, the people in the Bible study asked if uh, the old rugged cross could be read. And so Linda took a hymnal and opened it to the right place and and sat it on um, Betsy's lap and asked her to read uh, the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And so uh, she began to read. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. An emblem of suffering and shame. And at that point she stopped. And she became very agitated. 
And, and, and she said, I, I, I can't go on. It's too sad. It's, 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 just, it's just too sad. And the other senior citizens in the Bible study were horrified because they, they, in all the years that they had been living there with Betsy, they had never, ever seen her put words together meaningfully. They were dumbfounded that she had said something that made such sense. And, and apparently, as she had read that first line of the hymn, something, she understood something. And so Linda tried to calm her down and said, that's fine, Betsy. You don't, you don't have to keep reading if you don't want to. But, but after a brief pause, she began to read again. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And she stopped at the exact same place and said, I can't go on. It's just, it's just too sad. It's too sad. I, I can't go on. Completely unaware that she had said the exact same thing about two minutes earlier. She tried it again. And she began to cry. And she stopped again at the same place over the exact same words. An emblem of suffering and shame. The Bible study was over and um, all the other participants had begun to scatter. Some were going to the cafeteria. The others were going back to their rooms. And, and the, um, the staff workers had come into the room to rearrange the furniture after they had left. And when, when Linda kind of sensed that Betsy had calmed down, she took her by the arm and was going to lead her back to her room. And as they were walking down the hall, going to her room, to Linda's utter amazement, Betsy began to sing the song. She didn't have the tune quite right, but the words were perfect. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And Linda thought, oh no, I, I wonder what's going to happen. And, and, and Betsy began to cry But she continued to sing. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And exchange it someday.
for a crown. Somewhere in that tattered mind, damaged neurons have tapped into a network of, of old connections to resurrect a pattern of meaning for Betsy. Earlier, in her confusion, there were only two things that stood out. Suffering and shame. But this time, this time she had moved beyond the suffering and the shame. And she had drawn closer to the one who hung on a cross whose life and death there put an end to her suffering and shame, which encouraged her to keep on singing. And so she cherished and she clung to an old wooden cross knowing that because of what took place on it, there will be someday, in the place of my suffering and shame, a crown. She had moved from suffering and shame Past the cross and on to hope. Folks, oh, I invite you and encourage you to cling to the cross of Christ, but you need to know this it's empty now, and so is his tomb. And it's that resurrection that is a divine reversal of a human decision. A, a, a reversal that declares that God is satisfied with what His Son has accomplished for His people. And because God is satisfied with what the Son has done... He walks out of a grave, and ever since, all of us who know him can continue to hope. We possess a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that moves us beyond our shame beyond our suffering all the way over to hope. Out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ there flows a, a, a confidence and an energy because we know that in the place of suffering and shame there's a there's a crown, a crown that awaits.
someday. Take that away. And you're left with suffering and shame. And it's too sad to go on. On or about the 24th of this month, a little six-year-old orphan will be awakened by an orphanage employee and she'll be told to get dressed because she's going to go to a courtroom and there she will be given a new set of parents a new last name and a life that she has not dared to dream as of yet. And she made it because of a living hope. And perhaps not too many weeks or months after that, a dear man of immense character is going to rejoin a person to whom he has written letters for the last 15 years. And his hope will be brought to a to a consummation. And for others like Betsy, whose mind has been trapped and too clouded to understand anything, anything but her suffering and her shame, the Christian story will end for her with the fulfilled promise of a new mind which which retains suffering and shame, if at all, only as a distant memory. And for the rest of us, like you and me, there is no amount of suffering that should make us ever give up on hope. Why? Because we have been resurrected, we have been born again by God to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, at the center of our religion stands an event that is the source of all of our hopes. The physical, bodily Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, all hope is gone. With it, hope runs deep. And so, my brother and sister in Christ, keep on singing.
Father, I, I do pray that you will remind your people that there is great reason for them to live with a certain buoyancy to their souls. That no matter who they've, who they've lost, no matter what they face, there is never enough that would make your people devoid of hope. And so, Father, having gloried in the fact that Jesus Christ on an old rugged cross bore our suffering and shame, we, we await a someday. A someday when the suffering and shame will be replaced by a crown. Until then, We'll keep singing. We'll keep singing about a Savior. A Savior who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that we, as guilty sinners, can hope. We pray all of this, of course, in Jesus' name.